Hello and welcome to Le Monde Diplomatique's podcast for September 2011. My name is George Miller, and each month I bring you an in-depth interview with one of our contributors. This month, my guest is Kay Biswas, who is a writer and journalist based in London. He's currently working on a book on the emergence of the far right in Europe and anti-immigrant sentiment in Europe and the US. His article in the September edition of Le Monde Diplomatique focuses on the rise of European populist far-right parties, and in particular contrasts the recent fates of the British National Party and France's Front National. I started by asking him what originally set him on this line of research. I suppose I've always been fascinated by uh, fringe political movements ever since I was uh, was younger. So I've always been following the um, successes and, uh, I suppose, fluctuations in the support for the British National Party in the UK. And it just built up from that, really. So I've been, I've been studying the Front National for a good um, decade now. And um, basically, I've been looking at trends in the re-emergence of far-right populism across Europe. We find ourselves in an interesting situation in 2011 where far-right populist parties seem to have increased their influence over the political landscape in a number of countries in Western Europe. We've seen in Holland, Geert Wilders' Party for Freedom is part of a governing coalition there. In Italy, we have the Lega Nord, which is part of the coalition uh, government. And in Denmark, we have the Danish People's Party, which uh, has um, strong influence on government proposals regarding immigration and security and has been part of a coalition for about 10 years now. Also in France and Austria, we've seen Marine Le Pen and Heinz Christian Stracker, respectively, out polling in a number of polls the uh, current leaders of their country. And they've got presidential elections both next year. So um, it's an interesting time. I wondered in the context of what you've just said, you know, talking about in Europe where there's a certain sort of mainstreaming of these, um, of these far-right parties, is Britain, is the BNP the aberration? Because, it, the, you know, we don't see that phenomenon happening here. So is there a, a cleavage between how, it's, um, how its, its fortunes are in the UK and, and really the direction of the far-right in the rest of, of um, mainland Europe? I think if you, if you study the, the BNP's poll ratings at general election time, they have mirrored these parties across Europe. They, in 2010, received uh, around 563,000 votes compared to, I think it was just uh, around 200,000 votes in 2005. Yet, I think in, in recent years, and I'm talking over the last five years, there has been the shift in influence uh, across Western Europe, which the BNP haven't really got to uh, grips with. I think their high point was in 2009 during the European elections where they got nearly a million votes on a, a relatively low turnout and they elected their first two members of the European Parliament. But they struggled to get two thirds of, of that in last year's general election. And my argument is I think they are unwilling to break from their past. I think a lot of these parties across Europe have stripped away ideas around race and I, I suppose whiteness for want of a better word. I think the BNP is still preoccupied by these issues of race. Uh, when I met Nick Griffin um, about a month ago up in Barnsley in South Yorkshire, 
he was um, talking to me in terms that I think he would be quite em embarrassed by. He's been allowed uh, over the last couple of years to claim that the BNP is not preoccupied by race, that it is about identity and uh, common languages and common goals and values. And yet, if you push him, he will talk about the problems within the black community or he will talk about problems with Muslims. He, he thinks that there's a conspiracy whereby Muslims are grooming young white girls in, in vast numbers that's been covered up by a compliant media. He mentions a, a, a Zionist you know, conspiracy that's denying the BNP a voice and also a militant gay conspiracy within uh, the British media that doesn't want the British National Party to succeed. Mm. A lot of these parties across Europe are very much standing shoulder to shoulder with Israel. They're very accepting to gay members of their party. And also, they don't speak in terms of race. Where Marine Le Pen's been very successful is she always invokes the Republic when speaking about France and French inhabitants. She always talks about French values that we should all adhere to, no, uh, no matter what race people are. And yes, yeah, she's attracting support from second and third generation immigrants living in France. Last year, the British National Party was um, for the British National Party was the first year whereby they allowed non-white members of the party. So, a little example: if, uh, say, I was a Scandinavian who wanted to apply to be a member of the British National Party, who was born in Scandinavia, who moved recently to the UK, I would be allowed to be a member. Yet, if uh, myself, you know, I'm a, a first generation, born in Britain, British national. I, because of my non-white status, I wouldn't have been allowed to be a member until last year. So a lot of these parties have had several, um, had um, several years whereby they're very accepting to non-white members. The BNP, this is a recent thing. I mean, you, you emphasize this phenomenon of breaking yeah. with the past. And in that regard, Marine Le Pen is an interesting case study, isn't she? Because in, in a way, I mean, she's, a, she's part of the dynasty. She's a, the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen. So in a sense, she, she is in no way breaking with the past. And yet, she seems to have changed the fortunes of her party and, and set them on a different course. Oh, absolutely. Marine Le Pen joined the Front National when she was 18. She's witnessed a good five presidential elections and has played a, re a leading role in developing its policy. She is very much wedded to the Front National and has been for several decades. However, that change at the top earlier this year has signalled a shift. But a lot of people understand that the lower ranks have not changed. They still contain ethnic nationalists. They still contain unashamed xenophobes. So that symbolic change at the top has allowed people's pro projection of what is negative about the Front National to be stripped away. There is no more bombastic, verging on, dare I say, racist talk from the leader. The leader does not want to get into debates around um, around races or colour, she will just talk about France. And um, it's very impressive and it's, it's having an effect in the polls. I mean, her, uh, her poll ratings are around, I think, 20% in uh, an, a number of recent polls. And um, many polls put her in front of Nicolas Sarkozy and whoever socialist candidate is, is uh, put forward. And yet, it does seem that she's been allowed 
to be seen as part of the mainstream due to a shift in discourse around Nicolas Sarkozy and his, his government. I mean, there has been a lot of talk around issues of national identity, Islam's place in France, the veil's place in France, which has allowed her to seem, I think, very sober. When you've got ministers in the UMP government describing the veil as, say, a Mickey Mouse mask, which is uh, a, t a term that was used by a, a leading Sarkozy minister, Marine Le Pen, with her sober voice around the issue, she doesn't um, prescribe anything to Islam itself. She, doesn't, uh, she says that we just simply don't do that in secular France. She can talk about how secular French Republican values should be adhered to by everyone, no matter what religion they uh, claim to be. How much of a, a role do you think the media plays in the fortunes of these parties? Because I think, again, there's an interesting dichotomy where the BNP and Nick Griffin really haven't been embraced in any sense by the mainstream media in the UK. And yet you say in your article that Marine Le Pen is one of the most frequently profiled figures of the opposition in, in the French media. So, so how big a part do you think that's playing in their fortunes? I find the media's role in the growth of uh, the far right across Western Europe fascinating. I think um, twofold. There are two very interesting issues around this. I think the populist press, certainly in the UK, and we have no elected members of our national parliament in the UK, but the populist press almost daily puts out scare stories against uh, immigrants. And basically they have managed to bind issues of economics and security to the issue of immigration. You've got the front pages of the Daily Star and the Daily Express, two um, populist tabloids in, in the UK that all, yeah, almost daily have um, scare stories around Muslims, things like uh, Muslim schools ban our culture, things like uh, uh, Muslims tell British go to hell. They're direct quotes from front pages of the uh, Desmond publications in the UK. Mm. and. This, uh, I think, instills um, a loss of fear uh, amongst members of uh, publics around the issues of immigration and specifically Muslim immigration. There are a number of statistics which shows that the, the public have very hostile views to Muslim immigration. You've got around half of Brits linking Islam with terrorism. You've got four in ten French people who see Muslims living in their country as a threat to their national identity. You've got over half of Danes who believes that Islam hinders social harmony. So these are, these are widely held views by members of the public who may not necessarily have that day-to-day -day contact with immigrant communities. So th there is a role. I think the second point around the media is there has been a growing intellectualization of Islamophobia. You'll see respected publications across the world printing scare stories around demographic time bombs and um, I suppose Muslim birth rates even. There was a uh, there's a Financial Times columnist in, in the UK, a very respectable man, very intelligent man called Christopher Caldwell, who thinks that Muslims are conquering Europe street by street. You uh, had the um, Italian author author Oriana Falacci, who said that Muslims come over to Europe and breed like rats. You've got Mark Steen, who thinks that we're going to live in an Islamified Europe. Everyone under 40 will be living in an Islamified Europe in the future. I don't think it's a, an, an active strategy, but 
two things um, have happened, which is the intellectualization and the populist press, I think exploiting the issue of and the, 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 the real um, popular Islamophobia that's uh, held by a number of politicians and sadly held by vast sections of the public to sell papers. How much of a role do you think the character and the political nous of the leader plays in the success of a, a far-right party? Because, because clearly that, that does weigh quite heavily in, in exerting popular appeal that translates into votes. I think, I think absolutely, yes. Um, a, a number of uh, these parties across Europe have very charismatic leaders, well, certainly in comparison to a number of the mainstream politicians that these countries have. In Austria, you found Heinz Christian Stracker, who is a mainstay of the Austrian far-right Freedom Party, has attracted a lot of support amongst younger people, first-time voters, who see in him a politician who they can, for the first time, connect with. I think he, he, he gained something like 40% of support amongst those under 30, which is a huge, a huge number. You've got in Denmark, you've got Pierre Kjarsgaard, who is the head of the Danish People's Party, who manages to, I think, take advantage of her anti-elite credentials. She portrays herself as Mama Pia, which is a, basically, you know, the, the kind of mother of the nation, the uh, anti-politician. And certainly it has helped Marine Le Pen a lot. She's a very impressive performer on chat shows and, um, and in interviews. And she rarely stumbles over issues regarding race, uh, issues that allowed far-right parties to remain toxic for so many decades. What Nick Griffin has failed to do, uh, I, I think a great example is the Question Time appearance in 2009, which I, I mentioned in my piece. But... It was pretty much a whole audience and three mainstream political parties dedicating a show against the British National Party. Now, instead of basically ex exposing this and talking in sober terms, I think um, Nick Griffin basically fluffed it. He said some bizarre statements. He said that uh, the image of gay men kissing was creepy to most people. Mm. He um, um, admitted links with the Ku Klux Klan's David Duke. I don't think he adequately gave a response when it came to issues of his past Holocaust, alleged Holocaust denial. So he's not a very good media performer in the same way that someone like Stracker, Le Pen or Kjarsgaard is. And of course, the king of far-right performers is Geert Wilders, the Dutch Freedom Party's head who speaks at rallies in the US, writes opinion columns in the Wall Street Journal in terms that makes it clear where he stands. There is no messing around with the language he uses. He thinks that the Koran should be banned. He, calls, he compares it to Mein Kampf. He calls it a fascist book. Now, no one, there, there, there's no politicking around the language uh, he, he'll use around, um, uh, around his country's Muslims. He says, I don't want, I want Im uh, Muslim immigration to stop. Not one more Muslim should come into Holland. And this is attracting support from uh, members of the public who I think over the last couple of decades have been used to politicians not really taking a stand on any issue. I wanted to ask you how you situate the terrible recent events in Norway within the bigger picture of the far right in Europe? Is it an aberration or is it pointing to something beyond itself? The horrendous tragedy in Norway, I think, has, I suppose, shone a light on 
Europe's far right. I think there has been increased media scrutiny. I think, unfortunately, a lot of comment around the links between one man's murderous act and the growth in far-right populism on a, on a political level, I think is slightly misplaced. What I will say is two things. One is the views that were reportedly held by Anders Bering Breivik, the perpetrator of the atrocities, are widely held in parliaments, both uh, national and European parliaments, by members of uh, elected members of far-right populist parties. These views also appear in uh, opinion pieces ac across Europe in um, respectable media. And sadly, they're held by significant sections of European populists. These views that there is potentially a Muslim takeover of Europe and that politicians, mainstream liberal elite politicians, are undermining the sanctity of the, of the nation. These are very, very widely held. But I also think that the second point is maybe more significant, which is a lot of people think that far-right populism in, in wake of this tragedy could decline politically in, in, in numbers of political support. I'm not necessarily sure if that's the case. An acquaintance of mine, a couple of days after um, the tragedy in Otoya and Oslo, spoke to the head of the mainstream anti-immigrant uh, and Islamophobic party, uh, the Progress Party, and the leader is called Siv Jensen. And Siv Jensen thought that this was an absolute tragedy, and she stands shoulder to shoulder with the democratic mainstream in condemning it. What it allows far-right parties to do is align themselves with the mainstream democratic parties, saying, we are not the extremists, they are the extremists. And this has been mirrored in other countries in Europe. I think the existence of a, a violent, small, disparate neo-Nazi fringe in Sweden has allowed the uh, Sweden Democrats, which is the far-right party in Sweden, which has elected 20 MPs at the end of last year, they've allowed them to distance themselves, basically cling onto the mainstream, saying it's disgraceful, these violent far-right neo-Nazi groups. We are non-violent, we are democratic, we are not fascistic. And it's, it's been very successful. Also in France as well, I suppose the Bloc Identitaire and uh, you know a number of quite confrontational and in, in some ways uh, racist groups. The, the Front National said, you know, we're not preoccupied by race, we don't go out confronting immigrant communities, we are democratically elected politicians. So I think they're the two most interesting points in the wake of Norway. Let me, let me ask you finally, do you see growing evidence of alliances and linkages between these parties across Europe? And, and if so, does, what does that portend? Now, th this is a very interesting question. I think the, the far right, very much like the, the far left, I suppose, has historically been beset by factional infighting. There are always factions within the broad tents of uh, far, uh, successful far right populist parties that uh, are prone to slipping away, splitting off and trying to create their own hubs of support. But currently, cross-country relationships seem pretty cordial. Let's look at the last year. You've got Belgium's Vlaams Belang, you've got Austria's Freedom Party, Sweden's Sweden Democrats and uh, a new German party called Freiheit uh, all took a joint trip to Israel together, basically uh, greeted by a, uh, a minor minister within the Netanyahu uh, cabinet. 
which is something that would be totally beyond the realms of possibility about 10 years ago. You see Marine Le Pen meet with Lega Nord, represents its party, the Italian government in Lampedusa, and the Danish People's Party supported Jimmy Ackerson, the Sweden Democrat leader's election campaign in Sweden. So I think there are individual relationships or relationships between individuals rather than strong party relationships. I do see the next few years these relationships strengthening. I think a key election is the European election of 2014. It could provide an opportunity to have greater collaboration. I think that far-right parties are on the way to becoming an accepted part of European political life in uh, a number of countries, for example, uh, yeah, Austria, France, Denmark, Holland and Italy. And because of this, I think they may extend their voting base with uh, a number of cross-country populist measures. They're all opposed to Turkey joining the EU and a number of uh, European governments are in favour of uh, Turkish membership to the European Union. All of them are united in saying no to these bailouts of struggling economies. Coincidentally, largely social democratic economies like uh, Spain and Greece and uh, formerly Portugal and, and Ireland as well, that there is a chance that if they can actually get their act together, leave you know, specific ideological questions behind them, they can form a bloc in the European Union, get access to public money and take advantage of, I think, a growing anti-elite and anti-European Union sentiment that's felt by vast sections of European populists. I was talking to Kay Biswas. You can read his article, UK and France, Far Right's Opposing Fortunes, in the September issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. He also reflects in this issue on what lessons might be drawn from July's tragic events in Norway. Do also visit Le Monde Diplomatique's website at mondediplo.com. There, subscribers can read the current issue of the paper and access a complete archive, as well as explore the Diplomatic Channels section, which offers articles, blogs, maps, images and a podcast archive. I hope you'll join me again next month for another in-depth interview with one of our contributors. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.